Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritaparna, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Matt Dawson. Matt is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Glasgow, Scotland. He's the author of The Political Durkheim, Sociology, Socialism, Legacies, published by Rutledge in 2023, Social Theory for Alternative Societies, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2016, and Late Modernity, Individualization, and Socialism, an Associational Critique of New Liberalism, published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2013. He has research interest in social theory and the history of sociology. Today, we'll be discussing his newly published book, The Political Durkheim, Sociology, Socialism, Legacies, published by Rutledge in 2023. Matt, I welcome you to this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. Delighted to be here. Right. So let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing this book. Why, you know, a book on Durkheim? That's a good question. I think, um, like many people of my generation, so I started studying sociology around the turn of the century, Durkheim was not really a figure when I first encountered him that I was particularly interested in. He was presented as to me as someone who perhaps if not the conservative functionist the previous generations thought of him as as someone who you know wasn't particularly critical certainly wasn't radical and was a bit staid and boring um so when I started my PhD about 13 years ago now I didn't have any idea that I'd be you know be interested in Durkheim at all and then for a whole variety of different circumstances, his name appearing in some of the texts I was reading, a sort of a in-passing type of reference to someone who was related to the forms of socialism that I was interested in or passing thoughts of this sounds a bit like the division of labour. I decided I should really return to Durkheim and started reading some of the books like Socialism and San Simone and Professional Ethics and Civic Morals. And I was really astounded by what I found there. I found a really radical, critical Durkheim. And I became a bit obsessed for it for a while. I kept just reading Durkheim and I kept reading all these different writers who had written on Durkheim. And what I found was that 
there were a number of people who were talking about this different type of Durkheim, a more radical, critical Durkheim, people like Giddens, Muller, Gain, Stedman Jones, and so on. But there was never really a full development of what it meant to think about Durkheim as a socialist or influenced by socialism or what that might mean, because after all, there's lots of different ways of being a socialist or lots of different ways of being influenced by socialism. So really, I think, you know, it started then, you know, and 13 years later, this book is sort of the end of it. And I find often, you know, when you end up writing books or think of ideas for books, it's partly because you sort of wish you could have read the book, you know, that in the past you thought, oh, I wish I could, I wish there was a book on X and you don't find one. So you think, well, maybe I should write one. And that's sort of what I came to here in this this book is a collection of essays, some of which are already published, uh, some of which are new, which really tries to bring out what this sort of Durkheim I discovered when I was starting to read them, this political Durkheim investing in socialism, but talking about his relevance and the value that I thought I was discovering when I read him and sort of trying to bring that work all together and show the value of this Durkheim. So the motivation was really, you know, 13 years ago when I suddenly discovered this Durkheim I wasn't aware of and trying to trying to give people a guide to this Durkheim that I was excited to read. Interesting. I think it does resonate with me as a sociologist too. Uh, so uh, let me also ask you, uh, because you've written this book on Durkheim, what is the need for yet another book? Because uh, what is this importance that we should reread and reinterpret classics? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's probably two questions there. So start with your second bit in terms of, you know, rereading and, and reinterpreting the classics i think it's really important we do this constantly and and part of that is a question of you know what do we consider a classic so obviously what in sociology we've considered classics has always changed throughout our discipline's history and a lot of the people we now would include within the notion of the classics um partly in response to decolonial and feminist perspectives people like W. B. du bois and harriet martineau Part of the way in which these people become classics is through returning to the text and reading them and reinterpreting them and showing their value. You know, it's not just purely a, a sort of historical question of justice, although it is that. It's also about saying, now these people are really valuable. They're really important. And the same way for people that we now decide we don't necessarily want to call classics. So someone like Parsons, for example, is a writer, you know, largely left out of that now. But this is all based around sort of rereading and reinterpreting at the same time. It's also about rereading and reinterpreting people we already consider classics and thinking about, well, what is it about their work that's particularly relevant now? You know, is there something that we want to draw out which perhaps hasn't been discussed in the past? So I can think, for example, of how people like Anderson and Musto have recently started rereading Marx and sort of trying to talk about how he was concerned with colonialism and global capitalism as a response to the sort of decolonial critique that we have now. So I think it's always really important to reread and reinterpret the classics in order to make sure they don't become stayed, you know, and we don't end up with sort of a boring canon that reflects what we've had and we just leave it unquestioned. We have to actually reread and reinterpret and engage with these ideas. And ultimately, as, as sociologists, we all learn through reading, don't we? You know, we, we're in a discipline that's largely based around the written word, and this is how we get our messages across and how we engage with the discipline but you also mentioned well, is there a need for another book on Durkheim well I guess maybe I'm the wrong person to ask since obviously I do I do think there is a need um, but I think 
the need has to be about trying to, as I already mentioned, sort of trying to say, well, let's go back to a writer like Durkheim on whom there's so much that's already been written and see if we can think about it differently. Is there something that we can learn that was previously overlooked about Durkheim's work, something that hasn't been discussed sufficiently or a way in which we can link him to the current day and sort of try to make him speak to some of the things we're facing. That's certainly what I try to do here in terms of trying to say, you know, there's this different Durkheim, you know, very much part of a socialist tradition that we can understand and also trying to apply him to attempts in the current day, you know, and sort of political issues such as some of the ones I discussed there, such as COVID, such as economic recession and probation. And talking about how, what Durkheim would have to say about these issues in the current day. So I, I think there's a need for another book on Durkheim if we have this, you know, new position to take. If if people feel like they want to read another book on Durkheim, I guess that, that's for them to decide. Um, but uh, yeah, I certainly think there's a need for another book on Durkheim. Uh, interesting. So uh, how would you locate your book within the existing, uh, you know, theoretical literature on Durkheim? Yeah, I think there's probably two distinctions I'd make. So the first one is that the sort of dominant position on Durkheim today, I would say, is uh, found in what's called the Strong Programme of Cultural Sociology that um, many people might be familiar with, which is largely American, uh, owes a lot to the work of Jeffrey Alexander. And this is a programme which, as the name gives away, attempts to look at a very Durkheimian cultural sociology. And in the introduction to the book, um, I'm... I try to distance myself from that perspective. And this, you know, there's always a tendency in sociology, isn't there, to sort of when you distance yourself from something to make it sound like I disagree with everything. And that's not the case at all. I think a lot of the work that's produced by that school is really valuable. But they tend to have two uh, things which I disagree with. The first one is that they make a distinction between two Durkheims. And there's one Durkheim, which is an early Durkheim, generally up to sort of rules of sociological method. This is a writer who's quite structuralist, perhaps even materialist, not really interested in meaning these different types of concerns and sort of underdeveloped, you know, not particularly sophisticated. And then there's a Durkheim too, which is primarily based around the elementary forms of religious life. And this is a writer who's a lot more concerned with culture, with meaning, with understanding these different types of questions. And I, I don't agree that there's this this fundamental split between two Durkheims. It's, it's a position that it sort of splits the Durkheimian field more generally, and there's different perspectives taken on it. I think there is a large level of continuity in Durkheim's writing. But my particular concern with the cultural programme of sociology is that um, there's a sort of splitting of what makes up Durkheim's political sociology and their notions of two uh, Durkheims. So in the, the, by having this first Durkheim, they say, well, he was interested in socialism as a state. But the second Durkheim, who we want to talk about, is interested in democracy. And I think for a good political sociology, you have to combine all those elements. And also, I think there's too much of a tendency to sort of dismiss the first Durkheim and say, well, we don't need to worry about any of this stuff. Just read elementary forms, you'll get the key Durkheim. And I don't agree with that. So I differentiate myself from the, the cultural programme. But there is also... Um, in the 21st century, an increasing you know amount of people who are talking about this radical, critical Durkheim. I think picking up on what I mentioned earlier, have been somewhat freed from that sort of very conservative functionist tradition. So someone I've already mentioned, Susan Stedman-Jones and her Durkheim, because is a good example of this. 
a recent books. There was an anthem companion to Durkheim and a book entitled Durkheim Critique by Victor Marcucci, which are both really fascinating takes on a critical Durkheim. Where I'm different from these writers is that I have a stronger attempt to place Durkheim within a socialist tradition and think more specifically about his normative theory and also, you know, attempting to, rather than place Durkheim purely within critical theory, my goal is partly attempt to apply him to contemporary political issues. And in doing that, to raise the status of a book entitled Professional Ethics and Civic Morals, which is a book that uh, is a collection of lectures that Durkheim gave, dates are unclear, but sometime between 1890 and 1900, which I think is sort of the key place you have to go for Durkheim's sociology, where he talks about questions of the state, his normative theory, inheritance, inequality, capitalism, and so on. And I think we really need to you know, raise this book to the level of one of Durkheim's key texts. For me, it's his most valuable, but I realise that partly depends on the type of question you're asking. And um, I don't want to claim that somehow it's his best book, but it's certainly the one I find most valuable in talking about the political Durkheim. Right. So how do you understand the political Durkheim? What is his political sociology? Yes, good question. Um, I think, uh, in thinking about this, I think there's probably two key things that define a polit- the political Durkheim and two things that mark out his political sociology. One is that Durkheim is a fundamentally normative political sociologist. His concepts are always defined by what should happen as much as, and perhaps even sometimes more, than what does happen. And I'm not making a completely original point here. So Anthony Giddens, who I mentioned earlier, uh, made this point in the 70s, and Ruth Levitas has made it more recently with reference to sort of utopian elements of sociology. But I think, if anything, we can this element of Durkheim's political sociology is underplayed by others. So take some of the key concepts that Durkheim uses in his political sociology and be key to any political sociology. So... For example, Durkheim talks about the state and he says, well, the state is, in his terms, the social brain and the social brain, which in his terms also doesn't execute anything. So all of a sudden we have a definition of the state where it's not actually governing. The state is not actually investing in governance. It's not passing laws. It's not enforcing laws, etc. All it is doing in Durkheim's language is providing collective representations. So it's providing certain ideas of what the group as a whole is. And these include what Durkheim calls civic morals, so sort of moral guidelines that stand for the country as a whole. Now, it's actually very difficult to apply that definition of the state and find it anywhere, you know, to find a state which is operating as this sort of social brain invested in collective representations. We can think of examples where the state might do this. So in COVID, for example, the state was often invested with this power. It was sort of providing collective representations, collective messages on how we should be acting. But it's difficult to think of a state that's just doing this. You know, states rule, states are executors, they use force, etc., etc. But Durkheim sees this as not the business of the state at all. So who does that? Well, then Durkheim says, well, what we have is something called a political society. And a political society is made up of what he also calls secondary groups. Now, these secondary groups actually do the governing. They're the bodies which actually govern us. So what would be these secondary groups as we see them now? Well, you know, it could be perhaps local councils, although they seem to be a bit too tied to the state. They could be sort of voluntary organisations, sort of professional organisations and so on that might do this. But it's very difficult to actually identify this type of state political society set up in, in any country, really. And the key reasons for this is that Durkheim is using these concepts normatively. He's saying... 
this is what society should look like. To the extent that society doesn't look like this, we have a problem. And for him, the problem is based around what politics should be. And for him, politics is valuable when it speaks to us, when we have some form of connection to it. And this connection should come from political society. We should be part of groups that connect to our day-to-day activity, in which we have interest, in which we have concern, and which allow us to express ourselves politically and decide the state of society we want. But we don't have that. And then Durkheim goes on to talk about democracy. And he says, well, democracy is being reduced too much to voting regularly for members of parliament with whom you know you don't really have any connection. Democracy for him is about communication and about communication between political society and the state. And so Durkheim's argument is, well, is it really surprising we have something like political apathy when what the state, political society and democracy should be don't fit what they are? So I think, you know, the first element that marks out a political Durkheim is this real emphasis on the redefining of key concepts with strong normative agendas. You know, that this is what it should look like. From the start, his political sociology is normative. And I would say the second thing that marks out political Durkheim and the second key element of his political sociology relates to questions of morality and particularly morality and economics. So one of the key critiques Durkheim offers about politics all the time is the centrality of the economic. He talks about what he calls the amoral character of economic life. For him, making money can have no moral end. Its, it's only justification is itself. You know, it, but the problem for Durkheim is that we've come to take these justifications as natural. So we can think of this, you know, when we turn on the news, we'll hear all these economic descriptors, we'll hear discussions of economic growth or inflation, and we just sort of innately take these things as good or bad, you know, growth bad, uh, growth good, inflation bad, sorry. And for Durkheim, these things aren't innately good, you know, they have to be defined in economic terms, but politics has increasingly for Durkheim just become about economics, it's become about achieving economic growth. Instead for him, there's a need to reassert the question of morality. For him, politics is always about what's the right moral state of society? What should society look like? What's the type of morality we want? And politics has become about something else. And he argues this is true of, you know, right wing and left wing. You know, they've become too subservient to the economy. Instead, we need to reassert this question of morality and make it a form of public debate and concern of what morality should be. So I think you know, in terms of what marks out the political Durkheim, I think it's this normative element in terms of how he redefines his concepts and imbued some of a strong normative element. And then secondly, the way in which he reasserts the importance of the moral as the thing that as the thing that politics should be focusing on rather than economic concerns. Okay, so uh, could you also talk a little bit about the sociological alternative that Durkheim had proposed? Yeah, it's perhaps unsurprising given what I've just said about how normative Durkheim was. He had very clear ideas for what society should look like. Um, And in the book, in chapter one, I talk about uh, what his alternative would be. And I think there's three elements, really, that mark out this. The first one are what he calls the corporations. So the corporations are those bodies of political society, the secondary groups that I mentioned earlier. And they are professional organizations they are bodies made up of particular professions so you can imagine there would be a corporation for lecturers there'd be a corporation for plumbers there'd be a corporation for members of the clergy corporation for insurance salespeople, and so on and so forth 
So what that corporation does is, first of all, it achieves the classic socialist goal of socialising the means of production. So rather than, to use one example, car manufacturing, so the, the corporation of car manufacturers runs that industry. There's no bourgeoisie, there's no private capital who are running that. It's run by the corporation. But these corporations are then democratic bodies. We have votes in them. We vote on the activity. So to use our example of car manufacturing, you know, what type of car should we produce in? What should we be aiming to do it? How should we do it? What hours should we work? And so on and so forth. They vote on wages. So how does the money get distributed within there? And they also, in turn, for Durkheim, vote on what he calls the professional ethics of each occupation. So one of the things Durkheim is critical of is how, with the increase to use this term complexity, or, or what we might now call diversity of society in terms of our activities, we're all doing different things, have separate beliefs, and so on and so forth. We all lack a sort of sense of the moral purpose of our activity in terms of what is the moral purpose of working in car manufacturing, for example. So the corporation can provide that, can set a clear idea of what the the industry is for, and set clear moral guidelines of what is the right thing to do. You know what. What are our moral guidelines of lecturers and how might they be different to someone who works in insurance, for example? And in turn, for Durkheim, these corporations sort of become the basis of the political body. So Parliament becomes not a collection of people who are voted based around locality, but a collection of people who represent occupations in that body. The second element of Durkheim's alternative is uh, about banning inheritance, and he sees inheritance as just completely contradictory you know we exist in society for their kinds that proclaim individualism you know work hard get ahead succeed you know you will get rewarded etc when inheritance doesn't fit any of that for Durkheim you know it's a complete luck of birth you get rewards for completely disconnected to anything you have done as an individual so for him just ban it you know this we shouldn't allow inheritance at all it just shouldn't exist so where does that go? You know, once someone dies, where does their wealth go? Well, here Durkheim makes a, a almost a Marxist point, and he says, well, you know, wealth is produced socially. We imagine that somehow wealth is an individual product. No, it's a product of collective social endeavour. So therefore, when you die, your wealth should go to your corporation. You've produced it via working in your particular occupation for your life. They should then get the wealth back. Then there's a democratic discussion. What's done with that? Is it distributed amongst the members? Is perhaps, you know, if the corporation inherits a, a house from someone, is there someone in the corporation perhaps is starting a new family and, and needs a house? Well, maybe they have the house. You know, there can be a democratic discussion about it. And the third change relates to education. So Durkheim uh, is quite critical of contemporary education, saying we don't know what we're actually educating for. And I think this reflects arguments we have today about education. Is education a sort of humanist endeavour in which we're trying to give people knowledge to be informed citizens of society? Or is it something that fills gaps on the labour market? So we're trying to give people particular skills or sell. And Durkheim is critical of both of these and argues that, perhaps unsurprisingly given what I said earlier, that education should be about morality. It should be about reasserting the moral and in developing a, a sense of what he calls the spirit of association. If we are going to be part of corporations, if we're going to be part of these collective bodies to our lives, we should be shown their value and we should be shown to think in an associated manner. So he talks about tracking a class through and developing a sort of record of achievement of removing any form of individualized punishment, of having what he calls a prize for virtue to reward morality. 
But fundamentally, what Dirk Hamaki's education should be about is not about passing on a set of moral rules, you know, in a very rote manner, in the ways in which, particularly in Britain, uh, children used to be taught their times table by just simply saying one times eight is eight, two times eight is 16, etc., etc. Durkheim says that's not how we should learn morality. Morality is about exciting, to use his term, a particular moral perspective in people, encouraging people to think morally, but to think critically in terms of morality with the knowledge that the next generation are like to change our sense of morality and push it forward. And that's what we should always be trying to do. Okay, so do you think that Durkheim's works can be placed within the socialist tradition? Yeah, I, I think that Durkheim has a very clear place within the socialist tradition. And I think, as I argue in the book, the best fit is in a tradition of what's broadly called libertarian socialism, and particularly the work of G.D.H. Cole, who was an English uh, socialist theorist of the first half 20th century, most famous for a conception of what he called guild socialism. And you know, to talk about some of the key ways that Durkheim fits this tradition, this is a tradition which has a focus on guilds in Cole's work or corporations more generally. So like Durkheim, there's a focus on using occupationally specific bodies, which are democratically run, to socialise the means of production, to organise them, and to then to become the key elements of the political body. So much like Durkheim, Cole argued, you know, to the extent there is a parliament, this should represent the corporations, this should be based around occupation. We spend our life as part of our occupation. It's, you know, it's our key political focus. This is where we should have our interests and so on and so forth. So there's a... a, a a focus there on a shared means of achieving socialism. There's also a shared critique of democracy. So for Cole, like for Durkheim and for other writers in this tradition, there's a strong criticism on liberal democracy and its focus on voting and locality and a sort of focus on this somehow linking us to a state. Instead, for all of this tradition, there's a focus, as, as the term libertarian gives away, on a sort of form of continual engagement and continual communication and particularly a form of engagement that is functionally specific, to use Cole's term, you know, that is about our particular occupation in this case, about linking people to the concerns. Thirdly, they have a concern with inequality, like many socialists, but what's significant about um, Durkheim, Cole, and other writers in the libertarian socialist tradition is that they don't just see inequality as important in itself. You know, at one point, Durkheim says, you know, you can't reduce socialism to simply socialism of the stomach. You know, it's not just simply inequality is important, but it's not simply about having equal, equal uh, means. It's a broader concern with justice and the good life. It's a broader concern with how can we make the means of the good life available to many different people? And how can we ensure that work is fulfilling? For example, how can we ensure that people have equal means of living a good life? And then the sort of fourth thing which I think unites libertarian socialism and is often not something readily associated with Durkheim, but which I think is central to both his sociology and his socialism, is individualism. So as the name libertarian socialism gives away, these writers are all concerned with how can we develop a form of socialist society that allows for individuals to be free, to make choices, to fulfil their own individualism. And Cole had that focus as part of his work, but Durkheim has it as well. You know, all this focus uh, he offers on particular forms of socialist organisation is always linked to the type of individualism he talks about in his wonderful essay, uh, Individualism and Intellectuals, written the height of the Dreyfus Affair, where he argues, you know, that political organisation is a means of furthering individualism. 
it's a way of allowing people to have individual freedom to make choices to find their way within the social structure and i think you know both of Durkheim is united with the libertarian socialist tradition with this focus on collective organisation via the corporations or the guilds, whatever term you want to use, to fulfil these individualised goals, to allow for political individualism to have its its proper standing in society. So I think he fits quite well within that tradition, in my view. Right. You mentioned the contemporary at the beginning of the podcast. So I wanted to ask you about the contemporary relevance of his work and how if we could use his uh, theoretical ideas to understand the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I, I talk about COVID and I, I won't talk about all the different ways here, but um, I don't know about you, Rich Pana, but when I was going through COVID, thinking about it as a sociologist, one of the things I was really struck by was the ways in which it sort of almost reduce society to its basis you know like all of the all of the elements of society that we took for granted as day-to-day life or elements of sociality are are meeting each other's etc were suddenly removed and our societies were sort of reduced to what is the key things we need but what are the essential services what are the essential forms of sociality we almost sort of stripped them back in a way and i think one thing that's really interesting from a dirt climbing basis here is the question of the division of labor so all of a sudden, you know, we went from our very complex division of labour to a concern with who are key workers, who has to go to work, and not just who has to go to work, who has to go outside to go to work, you know, who actually has to travel to work. So on one hand, we get a collection of key workers who have to go out, who have to uh, work. And then we get a collection of workers who, in Durkheim's language, are able to disengage from the division of labour. So that could be one step of disengagement, i.e. they could work at home. And therefore, although as somebody who worked at home during COVID, not seeking to pretend that was some easy process, but at least your risk of catching COVID was lower. Or they might have been, as happened in the UK and many other countries, they might have been furloughed in the sense they were removed from their job for a period. Now, two things are particularly significant here. One is, I think, what we saw quite clearly was the level of interconnection in the division of labour that Durkheim discusses. So by having some people go to work, all of a sudden we realised that lots of other people also had to go to work. So obviously nurses had to go to work. Well, that means then a whole variety of people need to work in bus drivers, train drivers. We need petrol stations open. We need mechanics open. We need um, the shops that nurses depend on when they're driving there. We need road maintenance. We need all these different types of groups. You know, we need supermarkets open. Okay, we need delivery drivers. We need security people. We need a whole variety of different groups to continue working. It was a it was a wonderful example for any of us who who teach Durkheim uh, and introduction sociology want to talk about the division of labor. You know, COVID was a wonderful example of that. But there was a political element here. You know, that often these jobs that became key jobs some of them are broadly middle-class jobs, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. But often they are very working-class jobs, you know, working in supermarkets and so on and so forward. And what then happened is all of a sudden they became questions of justice. Durkheim talks about how a division of labour is, in his word, a mission of justice. It's about making all of us have positions in division of labour which are valued, which have moral worth, which get appropriate reward for our position within division of labour. But what happened during COVID is all of a sudden we drew attention to the fact that this reward wasn't there. So, you know, in the UK and many other countries, there was a, a weekly sort of, we call it clap for heroes over here, where, you know, once a week people would go outside and clap for nurses and all the key workers who are out working. 
then after COVID comes, there's no pay rise. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, what had been accepted for a long time, under inflation pay rises, which have been the norm in many Western countries for the last 10 years, became a political question. And they became to be contested. And we're currently dealing with large scale strikes as a result of this. So I think COVID really sort of brought that question of justice, which for Durkheim is central to the division of labour, out into the forefront. And what we're dealing with today is really sort of the legacy of that in the continual forms of political strife and industrial action that comes with them. Uh, yes, and we cannot not talk about uh, economic recession also when we are talking about COVID. So could you also talk a little bit about how we can understand it using a Durkheimian lens? Yeah, indeed, uh, two are fundamentally linked, aren't they? And I think really to, to understand what Durkheim has to say about recession, we have to understand what happens before it. So times of when the economy is doing well in the times of boom rather than the booms of bust. And one of the things Durkheim argues is, you know, we all have insatiable appetites, right? And we know this, you know, we can have one chocolate bar and then decide to have another chocolate bar. You know, we're not really hungry and we're quite happy to do that. We all have these insatiable appetites. It makes some sense to us. So we all need moral limits, right? We need someone to tell us, no, this far, but no further, to use a phrase that Durkheim uses. You know, we need someone to say, actually, you know, two or three chocolate bars is probably enough, right? And this is writ large in the times of economic growth. When the economy is doing well, we're all encouraged to spend, you know, because that's what keeps the economy going. There's exciting new consumer products, et cetera, et cetera. We're encouraged to seek out new jobs and seek out all the opportunities offered there. And in turn, governments, which, as I mentioned earlier, are tied to these measures of economic growth and the economy, don't really have much interest in coming in to regulate this. They see this as their purpose to encourage further growth, to keep the economy growing. And what we see then is at times, like in 2008, leading up to the, the last really significant recession we had before COVID, that there's not really any attempt to regulate the economy. And also at the same time, with the diversity of the economy, new very specialised techniques, particularly financial techniques, are expanding that no one but the people who do them would have any chance of regulating. But of course, there's no corporation to regulate them. So again, they're just driven by the amoral character of economic life. They're just driven by make more, make more, make more. They, the making of more money becomes an end in itself rather than, as we saw Durkheim argued earlier, some sort of moral end being the key focus. So therefore, what we get at some point, inevitably for Durkheim, is recession because all of a sudden the production outstrips the consumption because in this case, the production of financial products outstrip the consumption. And this is what Durkheim calls economic anomie. Economic anomie is about the lack of regulation in the economy, the encouraging of individual desires, which for him will always lead to forms of recession because these desires ha will have to have some limit. At some point, they reach up against the level where they can't still be satiated and they're beyond the level of consumption available. And what we get as a result of this economic anomie for Durkheim is a very individualized notion of recession. Um, all of a sudden, you know, we see the people who, when we're dealing with recession, who should be punished for it are often the poorest people because we've developed this notion of wealth generation for Durkheim where it's an individual effort. And if I've worked hard and I've earned money, that means people who haven't got money, haven't worked hard and haven't succeeded. So therefore, we get things like austerity that tends to come after periods of recession and the sort of cutting back of particular resources with, again, a focus on furthering the economy, furthering economic growth while punishing particular groups in society. So there's an inevitably Durkheimian way of understanding economic recession, which, picking up what I mentioned earlier, reasserts this need for morality and this need in particular for moral regulation of the economy, thinking about 
what is the end to which we want to direct our economic activity, not taking economic activity itself as an end? Right. So uh, we've talked a lot about him, but what about Durkheim's representation in uh, sociological textbooks? Yeah, this is uh, this is uh, the focus of one of the chapters in the book, and um, again, it's uh, it was just something that struck me as really interesting. And the chapter I wrote there was inspired by a Canadian study uh, conducted by Mallory and Cormac, who looked at Canadian textbooks. And I think we probably, as sociologists, don't pay enough attention to textbooks. You know, there's something I'm, I'm sure you've read a number in your time, particularly when you were starting out. Certainly, I did, um, and I'm sure the listeners have come across them as well. And they were sort of our introduction to the discipline. And what Mallory and Cormac found in their Canadian case was two Durkheims in these books. And they said, on one hand, these books represent Durkheim as this sort of key founding figure, the sort of the key inspiration behind sociology, the person who showed that even suicide can be discussed in a sociological manner, right? This person who showed you could talk about anything in a sociological manner, this key exciting figure, right, to introduce people to the value of sociology. Then if you turn the page, then there's another Durkheim represented. And this Durkheim is a very simplistic, functionalist, positivist thinker who was a bit naive, very conservative, and is just someone to reject. And this is what we saw in the Canadian case, and it's what I found in the British case as well, that there was on one hand this invocation of this really... Durkheim is this really significant figure who has this unique sociological insight, shows how things can be discussed sociologically. But also at the same time, this like naive writer who we shouldn't really be concerned with. And what then tends to happen in sociology textbooks is the second Durkheim is the one who becomes dominant and he's only ever mentioned as someone to dismiss. You know, so later writers who are contrasted in an approving way with this Durkheim, you know, they're not simplistic functionists, you know, they're a bit more critical than the conservative Durkheim and so on and so forth. So we see this in the Canadian cases that Mallory and Cormac looked at and the British case that I looked at, and while I suspect it would be different across different nations, I suspect there would be very similar things at work. And I think a lot of this has to do with the ways in which we've returned to one of the things we were talking about earlier in the pod, the ways in which these are sort of classic canon has been set up where, you know, by creating a canon of Marx, Weber and Durkheim, we also create this story and the sociology of textbooks that I read for this book, which is a fascinating field, and I talk about some of it in there, talks about the ways in which textbooks have to provide sort of stories for students to understand sociology and having a story whereby we have the radical Marx who's investing in communism and then a liberal Weber who's concerned with class and debating with the glossy Marx but you know not quite that radical means that you have to create a conservative Durkheim you have to have those perspectives to sort of feed students into them and you know the textbooks I read were very impressive I was impressed by what my colleagues had done but I also left them a bit sad that People who read them would not see any virtue in reading Durkheim. And going back to what I said at the start, you know, it's true. it was true of me, so I suspect it's certainly true of many students who come into sociology now that they don't necessarily see Durkheim as someone who's worth reading. And hopefully uh, I can have a very small role in trying to fight back against that. Yeah, it does resonate. So last question, Matt, could you talk a little bit about Durkheim's legacy? 
Yeah, I think it's a really rich time to be talking about Durkheim's legacy and a really important time to do it. And I think the decolonial critique has been really significant here. You know, what the decolonial critique has forced us to do is reckon with the history of our discipline and to going back to what we were talking about at the start, you know, rereading, reappraising these classical writers. And there's been some really important work that's been done here and some important work done about Durkheim. So Kira Saga, for example, has written a wonderful piece uh, in a book entitled Sociology and Empire, which is edited by Jules Steinmetz, talking about what he calls the constitutive paradox at the heart of Durkheim's view of empire, where on one hand he's very critical of it morally, but comes to accept some political reality of it. And I think there's important work to do there. But I also have a concern about some of it, and I talk about this in the postscript to the book, and the concern to which it can be guilty of what Julian Goh calls racial essentialism, whereby there's a tendency to sort of see groups to have particular views as a result of their historic racial positioning. So someone like Durkheim writing in the West is seen as white, this is part of the metropole, and therefore has particular views which we should now dismiss. And it's a lot more complex than that. And in the postscript, I talk about how someone like Durkheim, who was Jewish, was marked out as Jewish during his life, that he could only have uh, following Jacobson, what I call probationary, whiteness you know he would be white at some points but most of the time he was denied that he was seen as not white he experienced significant forms of anti-semitism you know multiple fears of losing his job at the height of the Dreyfus affair his family were scared to leave his house so I think we need to think very carefully about where we place someone like Durkheim and how we use the decolonial critique to think about the different positioning that these theorists had in, in terms of racialized economies and racialized political structures at particular points in time and in particular the internalized process of racialization within europe not just from without europe i think there's other ways in which you know durkheim's legacy is is rich for discussion and, and turned to and i talk about some of the book in terms of uh i have a, a chapter there which talks about what Anthony giddens had to say about Durkheim and one of the things I think I, I think is really significant there is how Giddens draws attention to the ways in which Durkheim published hundreds of book reviews and in times of academia now um, I, I think there's a tendency to sort of not see book reviews as particularly significant you know to see them as something that sort of superfluous to requirements but I think I think they're really important I know Rich Pine you have your own website the doing sociology website where you have some of these uh, book reviews and I think they're really important things to have they're a form of scholarly communication I think in many ways we should we should look to Durkheim as an example of how to do that you know that book reviews are part of how we communicate with each other as scholars and Giddens brings that out very well but I think you know if you said to me as you did what a Durkheim's legacy I think I was thinking about this and I think there's probably two things that I would want to bring out and say that I think mark out Durkheim's legacy one is that I think he shows us, again, an inevitably normative notion of sociology, particularly of political sociology. And I mentioned earlier uh, the work of Ruth Levitas, who's a huge inspiration for me, who writes about utopianism and a sort of inherently utopian element of sociology. And I think, you know, we can debate about whether sociology should have that. But I think Levitas is right in the sense of saying, well, sociology has had that. You know, whether it's implicit or whether it's explicit, notions of what society should look like often rest behind forms of critical sociology 
And I think Durkheim is a type of writer who really brings that to the fore in the ways I was talking about earlier, you know, by being explicit in terms of the definition of concepts, in terms of how he does his form of political critique, in terms of foregrounding this normative element of sociology. And I think this is one of the key legacies we have from him is to revisit that. And secondly, um, again, return to something we mentioned earlier, um, I can't help but think you know, that the key legacy Durkheim has is in a way the books that have his name on them and the articles that have his name on them. He is this incredibly rich writer who has great value to read and to enjoy. You know, he gives you insights for the current day, which I hope I've shown a little bit of in the book, but really at the heart of it, that is someone who can tell us something about the current day. And I, I think the legacy of any classical theorist, uh, whether it's someone like Durkheim, Du Bois, Martineau, whoever we're talking about, Zimmel, so on and so forth, whoever we're talking about, it should be about... You know, to what extent do they give us those insights there? And if, if they have that, that's a good of legacy to have as anything. Well, thank you once again, Matt, for joining me for the conversation on your new book. I wish uh, it all the best and hope that more and more sociology students and even non-sociology ones pick it up and give it a read. So thank you once again for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it.